remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita. Vishnu is trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty. And to impress him, takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. I suppose we all thought that one way or another. I'm only a damn dog, barking at the sky, barking at the moon. I'm only a worthless damn dog. I'm only a damn dog. From a nobleman's crotch, something hot pours out, bathing me all over, and I let a jet of hot water onto his legs. Damn dog. I'm only a damn dog. In Tokyo, 1923, a young Japanese woman in her 20s is standing in her winter kimono among the cooking steam coming out from the wooden sliding door of a pub restaurant known as the Socialist Odens. Oden is a kind of uh, traditional Japanese hotpot with daikon, egg and fish cakes. A worker's traditional stew. The streets outside are muddy from melted snow in the feet of pedestrians and rickshaw drivers bustling through that part of the city center known as Hibiya. The young woman's name is Kaneko Fumiko. She is reading the poem you just heard by the, at the time, to her, unknown author Pak Yol. It appeared uh, in a gallery proof to a monthly octavo published by a close friend and comrade who was a regular at the socialist audience pub um, in printing and publishing, gallery proofs are the uh, preliminary versions of publications meant for review by authors, editors and proofreaders, often with extra wide margins. An octavo, in turn, is a book or a pamphlet made up of one or more full sheets, for example uh, A2 paper, on which 16 pages of text were printed which were the, then folded three times to produce eight leaves. Each leaf of an octavo book thus represents one-eighth the size of the original sheet. The publisher was Chong Tae-song. He and uh, Pak Yol, the author, um, were members of an activist group with the badass name Black Wave Club. I can't really pronounce the Korean pronunciation of the characters, but uh, in Chinese it would be Hei Tao Hui later to become the Thunder Society, which sounds lame if it wasn't for the fact that the Chinese character for Thunder, this particular character, can also be translated as Landmine. Later it became the Northern Star Association and then Black Friend Club. Ever since Nedejko Jablinovic and uh, Gavrilo Princip, successful assassination of the Habsburg Empire heir Archduke Franz Ferdinand and the Duchess of Honenberg, throw bombs were all the rage in anarchist circles. After having studied the cookbook of cookbooks, um, which I'm sure they downloaded from DC++, Casa or Mirk, and having, filed and, and having failed again and again to make a bomb on their own, the group were now waiting for a proper one from the contacts in Shanghai. Shanghai, which is where the Korean exile government had its headquarters, also the mecca of modern East Asian leftism. Whilst waiting, the group spent their days hanging around in Tokyo, beating up conservative or lib journalists who dissed the Korean radical movement in the press. Other names during different times and membership lineups of the groups founded by Bakyul were Iron Fists, Patriots, Smashers, Bloody Fists, Black Daggers, Black Comrades, The Revolt, and so on. It goes without saying that uh, 
Anarchist group names often make for good punk band titles, but uh, unfortunately also labels of fascist gangsterism. But then again, I guess that's what happens when you paint it black. Episode 5 of The Return of the Repressed, and the first in our miniseries on Korean fascism and its opposition, seen through the lens of Korean political cinema. We are starting off, as you might have noticed, in the second decade of the last century, and films to watch would be Anarchist from the Colony, a really good film about the main couple of the story, uh, also perhaps the TV series Mr. Sunshine. Uh, which is, I mean, mostly filled with magical romanticism, but it's set in the same period and touches upon some of the topics which we will talk about. Um, There are also other shows like uh, Different Dreams, which is somewhat more political. If you want a glimpse of what is to come in the later episodes, then I suggest you uh, set sail and try to locate a small pond and uh, a taxi driver, both Extremely good films. But first, of course, stick around now for an hour or so for the story of the ever so defiant and beautiful Kaneko Fumiko. In her autobiography, which she wrote while in jail for charges of high treason, Fumiko wrote the following after having read the poem in our introduction. Oh, it's out already, I exclaimed eager to share in Chong's excitement. The contents, however, turned out to be things that had been written some time back, all of which I had read in manuscript. But there was one item that caught my eye. It was a short poem in a corner of the last page. Oh, what a wonderful poem it was. Every single phrase gripped me. By the time I finished I was practically in raptures. My heart leapt in my breast and I felt as though my very existence had been elevated to new heights. I was not familiar with the author's name, Pak Jol, and thought at first that it might be a pen name. But no, the person who had written this poem could not be one of the Koreans whom I knew. Who is this... this Pak Jol? I asked. Him? He's a friend of mine, Chung replied offhandedly. He's not very well known yet, though. Quite a poor guy. Oh, but but this man has great strength. I've never seen a poem quite like this. If Chung did not have the wits to recognize the author's worth, I certainly did. My reaction did not please him very much, though. What's so good about it? It's not any one thing in particular. It's the poem as a whole. It's more than good. It's powerful. I feel like I've just discovered here in this poem something I've been searching for. Got really carried away, didn't you? Would you like to meet the author? I sure would. Seriously, introduce me, will you? In the evening, when work in the restaurant was finished, Fumiko left uh, Chong to meet up with another female comrade named Hatsuyo at the school which the restaurant was paying for, so that Fumiko could receive an education. Hatsuyo had introduced Fumiko to anarchist and nihilist authors such as Max Stirner, you know, the the early nihilist who wrote uh, The Ego and Its Own, German title uh, Der Einzige und Sein Eigentum, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, 
whom I guess needs no introduction, and uh, Mikhail Artsipashev, a Russian playwright who popularized both of the aforementioned authors through theater and novels. Hatsuo also made sure Fumiko was familiar with Hegel. Here is how she describes her uh, political maturing before she went from sympathizer to becoming practical. I was gradually beginning to understand how society works. Up until then the true shape of reality had been thinly veiled. But now it all began to become clear. I understood why someone poor like myself could never study and get ahead in this world. Why too, the rich got richer and the powerful were able to do anything they liked. I knew that what socialism preached was true, but I could not accept socialist thought in its entirety. Socialism seeks to change society for the sake of the oppressed masses. But is what it would accomplish truly for their welfare? Socialism would create a social upheaval for the masses, and the masses would stake their lives in the struggle together with those who had risen up on their behalf. But what would the ensuing change mean for them? Power would be in the hands of the leaders and the order of the new society would be based on that power. The masses would become slaves all over again to that power. What is revolution then, but the replacing of one power with another? Hatsuyo ridiculed the movements of people like the socialists, or at best viewed them coolly. I can't, she said, hold a fixed philosophy about human society. What I do is gather people around me who feel like I do and live the kind of life that feels right. That is the kind of life that is most realistic and has the greatest meaning. One member of our group called that view escapism, but I did not agree. I too believed it was impossible to change the existing society into one that would be for the benefit of all. Neither could I espouse any given ideal for society. But in one thing I differed from Hatsuyo. I felt that even if one did not have an ideal vision of society, one could have one's work to do. Whether it was successful or not was not our concern. It was enough that we believed it to be valid work. The accomplishment of that work, I believed, was what our real life was about. Yes, I want to carry out work of my own. For I feel that by so doing, our lives are rooted in the here and now, not in some far-off ideal goal. So who was Kaneko Fumiko? Because we all know there are two kinds of nihilists who read Nietzsche. The first kind, and unfortunately the most common one, never breaks free from the level of cynicism. They are inactive, anxious, and hide from themselves and others their heart's true desire. So when they speak about the rejection of life and the will to die, I usually go, ah, whatever, you pretentious prick. But the other kind, the hysteric, is brave and willing. And when she writes poetry such as, The moon shines, it shines, and yet people still follow an endless dark road. Why, that's when I usually say, tell me more about this life which has hurt and thorned you so much. Whether Fumiko in this poem meant to depict life as an endless road of darkness and suffering, or was more concerned with human ignorance, this poem well captures a negativism about humanity that she often expressed. It conjures up a picture of life as a path along which people blindly grope their way, though the path is illuminated by the moon and should be clear. Thus it suggests classical Buddhist pessimism, since in Buddhism ignorance and suffering are intimately connected and the moon has often symbolized enlightenment. The theme of death as freedom and thus a release from life should by now be all too common to us after the first miniseries. But Kaniko Fumiko has a different story than California's most destitute. 
and just like them, it is a story which also deserves to be told. Fumiko came from a lumpenproletarian background, an unregistered child who had been shipped back and forth between Korea and Japan to different parts of her family which didn't want her for more than a maid or sometimes worse. At one point her mother even tried to sell her to a brothel, which, granted, is extreme but not uncommon in Meiji Japan. You see, for all the hype of capitalism overthrowing the old social relationships of feudalism, the Meiji Restoration did produce some strange compromises. There were a number of women who participated in the movement to win, quote, freedom and people's rights, end of quote, in the early Meiji years, in the hope that women would benefit if the movement succeeded. But when the Meiji constitution was adopted in 1889, women were not accorded any political rights. In fact, authorities restricted the rights of women even further. In 1882, the government forbade women from making political speeches. In 1890, it banned them from participating in any political activities or even listening to political speeches. The Civil Code of 1898 gave the head of the extended family virtually absolute authority. The head of the household was given the right to control the family property, fix the place of residence of every member of the household, approve or disapprove marriages and divorces, and so on. Basically, the new universal nuclear family was molded after the old samurai principles. The wife was treated as a minor under the absolute authority of the household head. One provision stated that, quote, cripples and disabled persons and wives cannot undertake any legal action, end of quote. Being a woman was quite literally seen as a handicap or a disability. Brothels were sanctioned by the government and impoverished families sold their daughters to these establishments in most of the towns and cities in Japan. In her early years, which made up most of her life, let's be real, Fumiko seemed more than anything to have wanted to study. The Education Act of 1872 had called for education for both girls and boys. But in practice, old samurais having become the desk officials who were supposed to carry out this verdict, read it as girls learning girls things and boys learning boys things. If you are not an incel and interested in samurais for other reasons than the glorification of rape and murder, I suggest you read uh, Shuhei Fujisawa, which often, though not always, paints uh, a more nuanced picture of samurais in the 19th century, as they became bureaucrats and accountants and what have you. If you can't be bothered with books, then uh, check out uh, Yoji Yamada's Samurai Standalone Trilogy, all based on Shuhei Fujisawa's stories. And if uh, Japanese bureaucrats is, you know, all that you care about, then of course you have to watch Akira Kurosawa's Ikiru from 1952. It's black and white and it's long, but, you know, (laughs) it's a bureaucrat's life. One lesson in a morals textbook issued in 1900 read, Girls must be gentle and graceful in all things. In their conduct and manner of speech, they must not be harsh. Loquacity and jealousy are defects common among women, so care must be taken to guard against these faults. When a girl marries, she must serve her husband and his parents faithfully, guide and educate her children. End of quote. An article in an educational journal published in 1887 asserted, The male is young and the female is yin. Consequently, it is only natural that women should remain in the house and be docile. End of quote. Thus in the schools for girls, domestic arts such as home economics, sewing and handicrafts were stressed. Fumiko thought, fuck all that noise, and went to a boys school in Tokyo when she was finally free from her family, having nailed a gig at a socialist sword and restaurant which we mentioned earlier. This is where after Cheong's introduction she finally met the love of her life, the author of the introductory poem about the dog. Chong, what's that man's name? Him? Uh, that's Bakyol, the author of the poem you got so excited about. What? That man is Bakyol? I exclaimed, blushing. Yes, that's the man. Chong, 
calmly replied. I asked all sorts of questions about Pak Joel and learned that he had been a rickshaw man, ticket scalper, mailman, longshoreman and many other things as well. He had no job at present, however, and uh, slept at different friends' home every night. Why, he lives just like a stray dog. Where does he get that powerful presence then? He carries himself as if he were a king. All the while going around like that, living off his friends, eh? Chong said with a touch of contempt. When he saw my displeasure, however, he added, But he really is something, that man. How many of us think as seriously and act with as much conviction as he does? Oh, how right you are, my heart cried out. Something was stirring within me, about to be born. What was at work within this man? What was it that made him so strong? I wanted to find out and make it my own. I left Jong to go back to the shop, and on the way it dawned on me. That's it. That's what I'm looking for. The work that I want to do. He has it within him. He is what I'm looking for. He has my work. A strange joy set my heart leaping. I was so excited I could not sleep that night.
You might wonder why a Japanese girl would want to or even be accepted to join a Korean group like the Black Wave Club. We may answer that by affirming, just like Hegel did a long time ago, that absolutely nothing great in the world has been accomplished without passion. And if we continue more concretely, a primary reason for the smooth operation of this Eros effect was that Fumiko had witnessed firsthand and had been woken up by the March 1st movement while she was living in Korea. I think it's due time, dear listener, that an English language podcast gives a recount of the March 1st movement of 1919, the Samilundong, as it is known in Korea, and the events that led up to it, because in a way, just like the Haiti revolution, it's one of the repressed early signifiers of the anti-imperialist struggles that would come to define the 20th century. I say repressed because you will recall that uh, 1919 was also the year of the Versailles Peace Conference, when Europeans and the rest of the bourgeoisie world put on a great cute show about how the new so-called peace was supposed to be about self-determination. A small delegation of Koreans, headed by a man named Kim Gyu-sik, took this slogan quite literally and went all the way to the chateau west of Paris to have their voices heard. To their great disappointment, the fine folk, or the uh, motley crew of inbred aristocrats, take your pick, of the Galerie de Glace refused the Koreans any formal seating or voting rights. You see, Kim and his group were unaware of a secret pact among the United States, Japan and France to bar discussion of Korean and Indo-Chinese issues. Standing outside smoking, which we all know is where the real party happens, they met another humble young Asian man from the French colony south of China. Despite the fact that he spoke perfect French, the young man of mere 29 years was also denied a seat. He wasn't even allowed to enter or hand in his petition for his people's independence. It seemed that the Weltgeist was not yet ready for his vision. Sansung Gaum, as he was called, would later change his name to something else, which fortunately for us Western barbarians who haven't figured out tones yet, it is a lot easier to pronounce. The name of the three ideographs which in both Vietnamese and Korean, well, in any Confucian country, I guess, can be translated as enlightened aspiration. And little did the shunned man in Versailles know that in 50 years time, a new generation of Parisians would shout his name in the streets. began on March 1st, Japan had been brutally increasing their control of Korea for some two decades. In 1905, Katsura Taro, politician and general of the Imperial Japanese Army, had signed the Taft-Katsura Agreement with William Howard Taft, the United States Secretary of War. A nice title for simpler, less obscure times. This gave Katsura Taro free reign to dominate Korea as long as he stayed away from the Philippines, which America had colonized after its war with Spain. A similar agreement was met with the British over its control of India, while China remained a wild west of corporate syndicates of less official gangsterism than national diplomacy. In practice, this meant that Katsura Taro could continue to organize said Japanese syndicates to a more coherent body, elevating its ambition to the ever purer Caesaristic levels of corporate interest, which at its peak, when military and economic interests converge, means full-blown imperialism and total capitalkrieg. We will certainly return to the history of class collaboration between various contradicting forces in Japan at the time in another episode, because the story of the Saibatsus and the Keiretsus 
the political parties and factions within the army that represented these system syndicates of banks, manufacturers, suppliers and distributors is an interesting story. But for now, let's note that the primary underlying contradiction for this forward movement, which by now had reached Korea, is the fascist brain damage idea of being able to eat the cake and have it i.e. to expand modern industry while maintaining a society of traditional social relationships. This of course is impossible because class antagonism is inherent to capitalism itself. It is the very combustion of its auto-engine. So in Korea, this meant introducing technical fancinesses such as electric light, trains and a massive expansion of the police and prison apparatus. A colonization symbolically signified by the very real gang rape and burning of the Korean Queen Min in 1895 by Japanese Meiji oligarchs, some of them educated at Harvard. I will now paraphrase from the book Asia's Unknown Uprisings by George Katsiafikas. Since a public assembly had been outlawed, Koreans were organizing underground. One major organizer of resistance was the Chondogyo Cosmic Religion, a transformation from the Tungha religion of the Great Peasant War in 1894. Similar to the Taiping Rebellion in China, which wanted to establish a heavenly kingdom of great peace, the Taiping Tianguo, Tungha sought to create a millennium of peace and equality. Like Cao Gaodai in Vietnam, Tonghak was a synthetic religion that advocated earthly justice while drawing inspiration from a variety of sources, both secular and heavenly, Buddha, Confucius, concepts of class struggle, humanism and nationalism. So successful was their mobilization that Japanese rulers were caught completely by surprise. Like the later 1968 Tet Offensive in Vietnam, a robust indigenous civil society synchronously mobilized the entire country to act in unison without a word being leaked to foreign occupation authorities. At 2 p.m. on March 1st, 1919, a young student named Chung Cheong stood up in Seoul's Pagoda Park and publicly recited Korea's Declaration of Independence. Once the declaration was made public, the 33 distinguished signers gave themselves up for arrest from the restaurant where they sat in order to dramatize their strict principles of non-violence. Chung Chaeyong urged people to march, and march Koreans did, as many as one million people on that day alone, and this was all without radio, TV, phones or Twitter. Huge demonstrations filled the streets of Wonsan, Pyongyang, Jinampo, Anju, Jinju, Eiju, Suncheon, with the same Mansei, long live chants everywhere. The next day, protesters appeared in the streets of Kaesong and Jesan. With a week, the movement appeared in Gwangyu, Busan, Taegu, in short, wherever Koreans breathed. Even Koreans in Japan and China mobilized. Some estimates placed the number of participants at more than 2 million people. While estimates of the total number of participants vary widely, no one disputes the fact that this was the largest nationalist movement in Korean history. Over three months, the total number of protests reached more than 1,500 and occurred in all but nine of Korea's 220 counties. The reaction of the Japanese colonial troops to the peaceful demonstration was brutal. They killed some 7,509 lives, with an additional 15,961 injured, and more than 46,948 people were arrested, many kept in prison for decades. Within a year, police stations rose from 151 to 251 that of substations in the same period from 686 to 2495. 
Yet the movement would come to inspire others. Annual farmer movements went from zero in 1920 to steadily increase to 1,759 in 1931. Similar trends can be witnessed in labor and youth movements. The movement also created martyrs out of those who were locked in churches and burned alive. One teenage girl who rose to legend in the movement was Chu Guan Sun. After the protest began, she returned to her hometown, Chiryong, in South Chongchong province. On April 2nd, she handed out Korean flags and publicly called for independence. A year later, on the uprising's first anniversary, she again called out for the country's independence. During her trial, she refused to remain quiet, instead throwing chairs at the judges and chanting, Monsei, Monsei. She was later tortured to death. Yu's body was never recovered, although her missionary school claims to have found her in scattered pieces. With that utterly grim image in your mind regarding Korean-Japanese relations, Somewhat obscure today as K-pop grew out of J-pop and kawaii culture has made a foot-binding patriarchy of neo-confucianism look almost, well, yes, cute. You might ask yourself in a somewhat defeatist way, what's the point? What's the point to all this? To answer that, remembering Hegel's call to passion, here is a small excerpt from an interview with Slavoj Žižek regarding the necessity and strategy of the act. The problem with ACT is that it's not so much what you do, but from what position, in what time you do. You can do the right thing. If you do the right thing in the wrong way, it can be the greatest catastrophe. It's better to do nothing. This is, I think, the big political lesson of even psychoanalytic treatment. It's not you know the patient's traumas, meaning, and you want to tell him everything. You ruin him in these days. Sorry, in this sense. The whole point of psychoanalysis is temporality. To do it, but at the right moment. And this is for me, the guy, is still behind me, Lenin, no? The Leninist lesson of psychoanalysis, no? To do not only the right thing, but at exactly the right moment. How Lenin had, whatever we think of his politics, he had this incredible sensitivity of political temporality, of how it's important to do the thing at the right moment. It's interesting to read Lenin just before the October Revolution, where he obsessively repeated, we have now a couple of weeks of opening. If we don't act now, we miss the opportunity for decades, at least. Back to that question that you touched on this fragility of the situation. And Lenin was here again very postmodern. He was aware that it's not that it doesn't matter, we miss this opportunity, there will be another one because there is a deep historical necessity. You know, he knew about what George Lukacs, who in his young years was not an idiot, he used this wonderful term in its precise Benjaminian sense of Jetzzeit, Augenblick, in the sense not simply temporal now, but the moment when you can blick view the opportunity, the moment to be seized, and you have to see it, it's there, you grasp it or not. That's strategy. And that's, I think, what we, in a way, what we need maybe now more than ever. Because now, today's temporality, I think, by temporality I mean social temporality, is more and more a kind of a relaxed Buddhist atemporal temporality. You know, the time just flows and so on. And uh, no, we, we, we lost this strategic sense of temporality, of seeing, grasping the unique chance of, of intervening. More, and this is for me, in this sense, True politics is temporal for me always. Something which done at the right moment changes everything. If you do it, sometimes even hours later, it's an empty, ridiculous gesture. Kaneko Fumiko and Bakyor agreed in some way with what Zizek just pointed out. And they both felt that the independence movement had failed in its highest goals. And with that, you might have a better understanding as to why the two lovers closed in on each other. He came to the shop around noon the next day. I sat down beside his table and said in a low voice so that the other customers would not hear. Would you meet me in front of the school tonight? There's something I want to talk to you about. What school do you go to? Kanda Seisoku. 
All right, I'll be there. I felt assured at last and waited for evening to come. Sure enough, he was there, just as he had promised, standing beneath the bare trees in front of school. Thank you. Have you been waiting long? No, I, I just got here. Oh, did you? Thank you. Shall we walk a bit? We chose a place where there were few people. We did not speak, however. What I wanted to talk about was not the sort of small talk you make on the street. I was looking for a place that would be quieter and more relaxed. When we came to Jimbo Chu, a venue, I saw a large Chinese restaurant. Let's go in there, I said and strode up the steps. Puck followed me without a word. We sat down in a small room on the third floor and the boy brought tea. I asked him to bring two or three dishes, leaving the choice up to him. When the boy had left, I lifted the lid from the teacup. Do you know how you're supposed to drink this tea? If you drink it with the lid off, it seems like the tea leaves will get in your mouth. But it seems funny to drink it with the lid on. How are you supposed to drink it? I've never been in a fancy place like this, so I don't know, he said, taking the lid off, then replacing it as I had done. But it's a drink, so I suppose any way that you can get it down will be alright. Surely there isn't a rule about it, is there? He tilted the lid slightly and drank at the opening. Oh, I see. That must be the way to do it, I said as I followed suit. The tea was not very good. We ate the food as the boy brought it. I was not making much headway with the meal, but Buck ate as if he were ravenous. I wanted to get on to the topic I had come to talk about, but the atmosphere was stiff and, I w- and it was hard to speak. Finally, however, I made an awkward beginning. Well, I think you probably heard from Chong that I wanted to be friends with you. Yeah, yeah, he did say something about that. Buck lifted his gaze from his plate and looked at me. Our eyes met. I felt acutely embarrassed. But having reached this point, there was nothing to do but come out with what was on my mind. I went on. Well, um, I'll get right to the point. Do you have a wife? Or, well, if not exactly a wife, someone like, say, a lover. Because if you do, I want our relationship to be just one between comrades. Well, do you? What a clumsy proposal. What a comical scene. When I think back on it now, it makes me blush and I want to burst out laughing. But I was dead serious at the time. I'm single. I see. Then, what I want to ask you. I hope we can talk absolutely frankly with each other. Oh, of course. Well then, you see... um, I'm Japanese, but I think I can say that I am not prejudiced against Koreans. I wonder though if you have any feelings against me. Knowing how Koreans felt about Japanese, I thought that it was necessary to ask this straight off. I was afraid of the emotions that Buck might harbor as a Korean. No, it's not the ordinary people that I hate, it is the Japanese ruling class. And I even feel a bond with people like you who aren't prejudiced. Really? Thank you. I smiled with relief. We made small talk once again. I sensed more than ever a strength in him, and I felt myself being more and more deeply attracted. At last, I broached the subject. I've found what I've been looking for in you. I want to work with you. It's no good, Buck said in a chilling tone. I go on living only because I don't seem to be able to die. It must have been close to eight o'clock by then. We agreed to meet again and asked the boy for the check. It came to 3 yen. I'll pay. I have some money today, Buck said as he emptied the outer pockets of his overcoat. They contained three or four golden bat cigarettes, a couple of rumpled bills, and seven or eight copper and silver coins. I stopped him. No, I'll, I'll pay. I think I'm richer than you are. We left the restaurant together. It was too late for me to go to school and too early to go home, so we strolled beside the dark moat in the direction of Hibiya. The nights were still cold and we clasped hands in the pocket of Buck's overcoat, letting our feet take us where they would. There was not a soul in the park, 
The stillness of the night was broken only by the feeble echo of a distant train. The only light was the silent glistening of the stars in the sky above and the arc lamps on the earth below. We found a bench under some trees and sat there, perfectly still. Our frozen cheeks pressed together until it was time to leave. We got up reluctantly and made for the park exit. At last I broke the silence. Where will you be spending the night? Buck thought for a while, then said in a melancholy voice, I guess I'll go to a friend's house in Kojimachi. Well, that's fine, but aren't you lonely like this with no home? Sure I'm lonely, Buck murmured, not taking his eyes off the ground. It's all right when you're well, but when you're sick, even people who are normally kind don't want to be bothered at times like that. That's true. People can be cold, can't they? You're a little thin, but have you been seriously ill? I mean, since coming to Tokyo? Yes, last spring. I had a bad case of flu and no one to look after me. I spent three days in a flop house in Honju, not eating or drinking, just lying there moaning. I was afraid I would die like that. I was overcome by emotion, and my eyes filled with tears. I squeezed Buck's hand. If only I had known. Soon, however, Buck said in a perfectly composed voice, Well, goodbye. Be seeing you. He dropped my hand and jumped on a car for Kanda. I prayed in my heart as I watched him go. Please wait. It won't be long. We'll be together just as soon as I finish school. And then I'll always be with you. I'll never let you suffer from sickness or things like that. If you die, I'll die with you. We'll live together and we'll die together. Mm-hmm.